Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to the 13th podcast in our series on the second half of world history. In podcast episode number 12, we looked at a third take on how industrialism was affecting the Eurasian continent. We looked at how it was changing the lifestyles of the commoners, as well as the impact of the critical thinkers like Karl Marx, and how, again, that socialists and even communists didn't despise industrialism, as, as is sometimes mythically known, but rather their concern was this massive wedge that seemed to be appearing between the rich and the poor, between the entrepreneurs and the hourly workers. Again, he also predicted that capitalism would collapse within a hundred years. And even though that obviously didn't happen, what do you think he might have been going through his mind had he been alive in October of 1929 with the stock market crash? Did it correct itself? Of course it did. It took years, but it did correct itself unlike again what he had predicted. So in this 13th podcast, in the age of nation states, we're going to see how two major players on the European continent finally unified to become the countries that we know of today as Italy and Germany. Before we plow into the unifications of Italy and Germany, we need to take a look at what was going on with the massive neighbor to the east, that being Russia. Russia, as we know, if we look at a map of Europe, in fact, for this entire podcast, you may find that having Google Maps available to you is going to make this a lot easier to follow. I'll do the best that I can, assuming you don't have access to a map. But again, if you have one or you want to put this on pause to listen to it later when you have access to a map, you're going to find it probably a lot easier to understand and follow. Russia, as we know, again, is blessed with a massive, massive amount of territory, the largest in the world. However, despite her huge size and expanse, her navigable rivers are only available to her for roughly three to four months out of the year. Eight to nine months, her river system is frozen, which means either she has to transport goods on the western border of her country through other landlocked countries of Eastern Europe, or somehow at grain access to the Baltic Sea, or all the way on the opposite side of her country to the Pacific Ocean. However, if she had access to the Black Sea region, wouldn't that make it easier for her to engage in world trade? Which was, of course, the truth. So what became known as the Crimean War 
from 1853 to 1856 is if you have a map of Europe in front of you and you go to the Black Sea region, an area that I happened to see a couple of times and actually was in the water on as I took a cruise on the Black Sea down through the Dardanelles, Sea of Marmara and Bosphorus Strait, you'd see this little neck or knuckle of land that extends south from the Eurasian continent into the Black Sea. That's the Crimean Peninsula. And Russia wanted access to that land, as well as, of course, to the mouth of those various rivers, specifically the Danube, because that would allow her to have continuous access to a river system throughout the year. It was a poorly fought war because of the way that the countries in Europe were deathly afraid that Russia would become too powerful economically and therefore by extension militarily if she were to succeed in winning that access to the Black Sea. So, the, so Britain and France sided with the Ottoman Empire. Russia, desperate for allies, turned to Austria and Prussia, yet they persisted in remaining neutral. Therefore, Russia, by and large, was by itself fighting to the best it could between Britain, France, and the Ottoman, and even the, the Roman Catholic Church jumping in on the side of the Ottomans, Britain, and France, ultimately to conclude, after this poorly fought war with the Treaty of Paris, that Russia not only did not gain her 24-7 access to the Danube River, she actually had to surrender land that she had access to before. Secondly, her reputation of an indestructible Russia was completely gone now. And do you remember that organization that was supposed to eliminate any kind of future land conflicts called the Concert of Europe? That disintegrated. Why? Because the way that world leaders looked at it, it was a failure. The very institution that was supposed to keep dialogue going failed and war resulted. So they walked away from the organization. This is going to happen time and again with these international organizations until we get to the United Nations that has still been in existence since the late 1940s, despite the number of wars that have broken out on its watch. The bottom line is what we'll eventually learn is just because an organization that is set up for peacekeeping measures and ultimately doesn't achieve that doesn't mean the whole organization is a failure. But that's something that we'll learn as time marches on. But this reputation of this indestructible Russia was forever gone. So that paved the way, in essence, with the countries cooling off as a result of that conflict for the various principalities in, in the modern day state of Italy to recognize the need to unify under one name and one flag. However, there would be multiple interpretations on how unification should take place and who should be part of the newly formed country. Two primary characters will be involved with the unification of Italy. The first one is Giuseppe Mazzini and Garibaldi, who led insurrections against any foreign influence, especially Austria. That was something that Count Camillo Cavour, the prime minister of the Piedmont territory in the northeastern section of the modern day state of Italy, that is something that they had in common. But Cavour wanted support for a constitutional monarchy under the Piedmont King Victor Emmanuel II. 
That's where Mazzini and Garibaldi split ways. They did not want a constitutional monarchy. So there would be a little bit of infighting until finally Garibaldi and Cavour would ultimately agree more or less on a truce and unify the peninsula in 1861 under a constitutional monarchy with absolutely no Austrian influence. Now, again, I just summarized in a matter of a minute or so, a process that took many years and count and a number of deaths. However, the point being is that Austria was sidelined here. A country to her immediate south was formed right under her nose of which she had no say in because of the way that the insurrectionists and the revolutionaries allied against her. It's not to paint the picture that Austria is this big menace of a neighbor landlocked in the middle of the Eurasian continent. However, because she is in the position where she's at on the continent, she has obviously a lot of interest in what areas around her unify or not. Remember that the smaller the area of the country or the smaller the neighbors, the less of a chance they have at perhaps putting any political or military negative influence on the Austrians. So Austria lost her ability to prevent the unification of Italy. Italy, as we know it, is now on the map through to 2021. So what about those 117 individual Germanic principalities with the largest one, Prussia? What about them? Absolutely not, Austria says. I want no part of a unified Germany. That's great, except that the Prussian prime minister, Otto von Bismarck, arguably one of the greatest statesmen in world history, kind of, shall we say, felt otherwise. This is the man that would play more or less the real live game of chess with the players being real kings and queens of Europe and the chessboard being the European continent. The goal for a united German state was the Kleindeutsch plan, which was a small German plan with no Austrian influence. If the Germans were going to unite, they put forward a Grossdeutsch plan. Go ahead and unite. But Austria is going to be the major player and the major one that drives the influence. You want to unite under a German flag? Great. But it's going to be with Austrian annexation. That's not what Bismarck wanted. But he was smart enough to know that an out-and-out war with Austria was probably going to end in a loss for the Germanic principalities. So he waited and waited for an opportunity to strike when he could possibly move ahead with his plans to unify the principalities of Germany. That time began in 1864. However, it had nothing to do with Austria. Rather, the Germanic principalities' neighbors to the northwest, Denmark, started the war of what became known as the Danish War of 1864, where Denmark tried annexing two principalities or territories known as Schleswig-Holstein into its borders. Bismarck soundly defeated the Danes, thereby raising the stature of his reputation to literally meteoric heights. 
The principalities, then the people of Germany, rallied around Bismarck and looked at him as a hero. Therefore, he interpreted it as the right time to unify the Germanic principalities under one flag with zero Austrian influence. However, because Italy just unified on the opposite side of Austria's border with the, Germ with the Germ uh, Germanic principalities, he was smart enough to know that Austria has its stethoscope clearly within the Germanic territories and will immediately snuff out any plans for unification. Therefore, he started, again, what I'm referring to colloquially as basically a game of chess. He knew that Austria probably was not the only country that did not want to see a unified group of German principalities because, let's face it, it would be a very large unified country on the European continent. Therefore, he had to make sure that all the, honor, all the other international ducks were in order before he decided to move forward. He went east where he was before his role as prime minister. He was ambassador to Russia. He was also ambassador to France. So he had the connections. And in Russia, he reminded the Russians that when there was a Polish revolt on its western border, that Bismarck made sure to remain neutral and not interfere so that Russia could win that suppression. The Russians reluctantly remembered this and agreed, therefore, to stay neutral should, just in case, a war break out between Germany and Austria. He then hopscotched his way over to the opposite side of the European continent, to France. And he persuaded France's leader, Napoleon III, also to remain neutral. Why? Because just in case a war were to break out between Germany and Austria, he doesn't want to find out the hard way that the French allied themselves with the Austrians. Napoleon III agreed to remain neutral. He then swung down to the southern part of the continent, to the newly unified country of Italy, to meet with the leadership there and ask them that the moment that they get wind that Germany and Austria might possibly be going to war with one another, would Italy invade Austria from the south? And in doing so, she would split Austria's forces between the northern forces trying to fight the Germans and the southern forces trying to fight the Italians. What, the Italians asked, do we get out of this besides an angry, large neighbor to the north? Bismarck said, you will get the territory that you've wanted from the beginning, Venetia, with its most popular city, Venice. The Italians agreed. How, they asked, though, will you get a war with Austria without looking like the aggressors? That, Bismarck said, is for me to figure out. Upon arriving back to Prussia, he took that newly won province from Denmark, Holstein, again, on the opposite side of the Germanic principalities. Again, this is where a map of Europe at this particular time would help out. But Holstein was a small province right in the southern border near Denmark on the opposite side of the territory of the Germanic principalities. He turns around, visits Austria, and complains that this new province is just so difficult to govern. And it's overextending his forces. 
It's overextending his treasury. Might Austria be interested in this province, even though it's not exactly connected to her? The Austrians weren't going to look a gift horse in the mouth and immediately accepted this Germanic province, which is exactly what Bismarck wanted. Upon leaving, he said, you know, by the way, Austria, the people of Holstein might really be irritated that they have more or less just been given to you and might lead an insurrection. And you know what? I don't want to have to deal with that on my border. So you might want to use your military forces to suppress any kind of sense of a rebellion up there. Austria says, great idea, and actively sends her military forces to Holstein, except they stop and say, how are we going to get them there without going through your territories? And Bismarck says, by all means, feel free to come in. So said the spider to the fly. With that, the Austrian military begins to march through the Germanic principalities, of which then Bismarck feigns surprise. We are being invaded by Austria, reneges on his deal to give Holstein to Austria, claims that they are being an innocent set of principalities invaded by this big collective country called Austria. Simultaneously, international opinion swings against Austria in favor of Prussia and the Germanic principalities. At the same time, Italy invades Austria from the south, splitting the Austrian forces and disintegrating the Austrian army before it ever stood any real chance at defending itself. As a result, the G Italy gained the province of Venice that it still has to this day, and through other diplomatic measures, Prussia would eventually ally themselves with all of the Germanic principalities, giving us the country that we know of today as Germany. Again, it was a brilliant move, set of moves by the Prussian prime minister. That's why, again, I argue that it is one of the greatest chess games arguably ever played with real people and on real land. So, where then does that leave Austria? And if by chance you were looking at a map of Europe at this time, you might be scratching your head and saying, you know what, Chris, I see Austria at this time, but I also see Austria slash or dash Hungary. What's going on here? Well, you see, both of them were independent nationalities or nations of people that recognized the need to unite together to form a larger country to be able to offset a larger Germany now and a very large Italy to itself. As a result, both dynasties attempted to come together. However, neither side could agree on which dynasty would be the ultimate single ruler. The Habsburgs of Austria, of course, insisted that they become the single ruler. However, the Magyars, or the Hungarians, said, wait a minute, you've just been defeated twice, not only by Italy, but by Germany. What grounds do you have to lead? As a result, both nationalities, both dynasties, co-led the country, which is reason why from this point forward in world history, we know it as the Austrian or the Austria-Hungarian Empire. So with that, Austria's brutal defeat by both Germany and Italy forced the Austrians to accept 
Hungarian legitimacy or legitimate claims to power. Rounding out this update politically on where things were on the Eurasian continent, we also take a glimpse at this time into Russia. The reason being is that Russia was still the last national entity to retain that institution of serfdom that predated all the way back to the Middle Ages. Alexander II, arguably one of the best rulers since Peter the Great, eliminated serfdom and all of its tentacles that was holding Russia back. There was a threat of revolt that was constantly having to be suppressed. However, too large of the population that was undeveloped is the reason why Alexander II turned to the West for ideas in law, in politics, and other academic subjects. Once again, we see this common denominator that world leaders that are open to other foreign leaders' ideas and national ideas tend to go down favorably in the rankings of world leaders. So in this podcast, again, I, in a matter of 20 to 25 minutes, beyond gave a very tip of the iceberg summary of how the Italian states of Italy unified to give us the country we know of today as Italy, as well as, of course, for the Germanic principalities to come together and form the country that we know of today, still on the world map as Germany. We also see how the creation of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, something that will remain until 1919, as well as reform that was happening inside that massive country of Russia, despite its loss due to the Crimean War back in 1853 to 1856. So if you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review. Thank you for listening. And next time when we return to our podcast on the second half of world history, we're going to see how these ideas continue to lay out both from the Enlightenment as well as to the newly formed map of Europe and what it's going to lead and mean for the Eurasians as they head in to the 20th century. Have a great day. Thank you.